0: So tonight we are in Isaiah 45. It's sort of an unfortunate break because Cyrus is broken over two chapters. So I'm going to pick it up at Isaiah 44, 24, because it flows into 45. This says, The Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. Who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners. Who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish. Who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers. Who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. And of the cities of Judah, they shall be built. And I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, be dry. I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. And he shall fulfill my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. So that's where we left off last time. And one of the things I said last time, I had heard, taught years ago, that Cyrus was shown this chapter of Isaiah, which is written some 140 years before his reign, and it was the book of Isaiah that convinced him to release the Jews. And I couldn't remember where I'd seen it. And now I do remember it's in the book of Josephus. So I'm going to go to Josephus. And I am in Antiquities 9, chapter 1. In the first year of the reign of Cyrus, which was the 70th year from the day that our people were removed out of their own land into Babylon, God commiserated the captivity and calamity of these poor people. According as he had foretold to them by Jeremiah the prophet before the destruction of the city. We talked about that. That after they had served Nebuchadnezzar and his posterity, and after they had undergone that servitude 70 years, he would restore them again to the land of their fathers. And they should build their temple and enjoy their ancient prosperity. And these things God did afford them. For he stirred up the mind of Cyrus and made him write this throughout all Asia. And this is now Cyrus writing. Thus saith Cyrus the king, Since God Almighty hath appointed me to be the king of the habitable earth, I believe that he is that God which the nation of the Israelites worship. For indeed he foretold my name by the prophets, that I should build him a house at Jerusalem in the country of Judea. This was known to Cyrus by his reading of the book which Isaiah left behind him of his prophecies, for this prophet said that God had spoken thus to him in a secret vision. My will is that Cyrus, whom I have appointed to be king over many and great nations, send back my people to their own land and build my temple. This was foretold by Isaiah 140 years before the temple was demolished, accordingly, When Cyrus read this and admired the divine power and earnest desire and ambition seized him to fulfill what was so written. So Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, also a captive of the Romans, writes that the reason Cyrus was moved is because he had read the prophecy here in Isaiah, which is where we are tonight. That's the only reference to it that I have found. There may be others. I just haven't found them. But that sort of matches what I told you last time, that it is not scriptural that Cyrus read it. In other words, it's not in the book of Kings. It's not in the book of Chronicles. So Kings and Chronicles don't mention that Cyrus read the prophecies of Isaiah and that moved him to send Israel back. The reference is here in Josephus. So we finish chapter 44 and... Remember in chapter 44, we had this long discourse on idolatry. And we've had idolatry mixed in throughout this entire poetic section that we're reading. It comes to a head in Isaiah 44 where you have this prose section where God says, how stupid can you be? You cut down a tree and you use half of it to make your supper and you use the other half of it to worship. How dumb can you be? Words to that effect. That's the thing that leads in here to Cyrus. And the reason that that's important is one of the things that God does through the voice of the prophet is he continually challenges the idols or the gods of the nations. Hey, come up here, tell us what's going to happen. Predict the future. We're listening. That sort of comment has been running through this entire section. So now we have this prophecy about Cyrus. So in the context of, hey, trot your pagan gods up here. Let's hear what they got to say. Let's hear what their prophecies are. At that point, the prophet of God, Isaiah, does make a prophecy with respect to Cyrus. And then we, who are almost 3,000 years later, read about the fulfillment of that prophecy some 140 years after the prophet spoke. That's what we just read in Josephus. So this continual mocking and challenging and trash talk of the prophet Isaiah to those who worship idols, whether they be Israelites who worship idols, or whether they be pagans who worship idols, this continual line of trash talk that's been running throughout this entire section sets up this prophecy of Cyrus. So now we're down to 45. Thus says the Lord to his anointed to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. You know, to loose the belts of king, that's sort of biblical talk for give a wedgie. I mean, doesn't sound that way in King James, but trust me, that's what's being said. So the point he's making here is that Cyrus's success is directly due to the hand of God being on his enterprise. And that's the thing that Cyrus is going to read. So Cyrus is going to read that and say, wow, this God 140 years ago spoke my name, and he also spoke about what I'm going to do, and he, this God, says that he's the reason I am so successful. Parentheses. I better do what this God says. So verse 2. This is now the prophet... Quoting God I will go before you and level the exalted places, I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places, that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. So what he's saying here is, I'm the reason for your success. I know who you are. I know who you're going to be. And the only reason that you're being successful is because I need you to do something for my people, Israel. It ain't that I think that you're such a great guy. It's because the 70 years that were prophesied by Jeremiah have expired. You happen to be the king who's on deck when that prophecy expires, therefore I need you to do some stuff, and because I need you to do some stuff for my people Israel, I am giving you success. It isn't that God just sort of looked down and said, wow, that guy Cyrus is really cool. Let's go ahead and help him out. That's not what's happening. Cyrus just happens to be the king who's on deck after the 70 years prophesied by Jeremiah is complete. So, verse 4 again. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. So this is by way of impressing on Cyrus that he really needs to pay attention. Verse 8. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? By the way, this verse 9 is quoted by Paul. We're in Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 19, which is where the paragraph is in my Bible. Paul says, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath Prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Let's camp here for just a minute. So, the first thing is obviously, Paul is referring back to this passage in Isaiah. And the passage in Isaiah is saying to the creature, in this case, Cyrus, that if you do not do what your creator calls you to do, you have a problem. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Or to the clay who forms it and so forth. So the idea that the one who does the creating has dominion, power, authority, whatever you want to do over the creature. And by the way, that's the basis of Christian theology. God is the one who created the earth. God is the one who created us. Therefore, we owe him obedience and service. Simply because of our relationship as creature to creator. So what Isaiah is saying to Cyrus is he is giving him a one-on-one course on basic Judaism here. I'm the one who created you. I'm the one who has dominion over you. I created you for a purpose, I set you up for a purpose, don't screw it up. That's sort of the message to Cyrus. Back now to Paul, I found something interesting as I was reading this just now that I hadn't seen before. I'm in Romans 9, 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? This, by the way, is the basis of Calvinism, which is to say free will doesn't exist. God is all powerful. God is the one who corrects everything. Therefore, people who sin have no choice in their sinning. Therefore, why does God hold them accountable? So the question becomes if we are a creature, if He has dominion over us, or if He has control over us, how then can He blame us for sin if that's the way He made us? And then, verse 20, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? In other words, You're arguing above your pay grade. Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make of the same lump one vessel for honored use and the other for a dishonorable use? Now, stop there for a minute because the words are about to change. I see this as one vessel is a chamber pot, the other vessel is a flower vase, or wine carafe, or, you know, something decorative, something beautiful, a vase for your flowers, but they are both useful. So a chamber pot, although it is for dishonorable use, quote-unquote, is still a useful thing. If you had to choose which one you had, you'd choose the chamber pot. The chamber pot is in many respects more important. So the first thing to notice is in this example, honored use and dishonorable use, I am taking to be a clay vase for holding flowers in a chamber pot. So that's the first thing. Notice that we have honored use and dishonorable use. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with patience vessels of wrath? Wait a minute, we've just changed the terms here. So we had our clay vase and we had our chamber pot. Now we're talking of vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And what I'm suggesting is that he did not make the chamber pot as a vessel of wrath prepared for destruction. That's what happens when the vessel ceases to perform the function for which God made it. The point I'm making, and I'm suggesting the point Paul is making, is none of us is destined for wrath. Some of us are made chamber pots. Some of us are made vases. The problem we have today with people who have what we would call unnatural sexual proclivities who excuse their behavior by saying God made me like that. And the answer to that is yes, he did because he has given you a set of challenges to overcome which are different than the set of challenges he's given me to overcome. And there are perfectly honorable things that a person with unnatural sexual desires can do that don't involve satisfying those desires. I have desires that I work really hard not to satisfy. We all do. Everybody does. And the desires that you have that you are struggling not to satisfy, whether they be sexual, whether they be materialistic, whether they be whatever, ...are challenges that have been built into you by God that he expects you then to work to overcome. What Paul is saying here, what he doesn't expect you to do is say, what can I do? God made me that way. That's Paul's argument in a nutshell. Everybody has challenges built into themselves that they have to overcome. And one assumes that God has made you with the ability to overcome that challenge and you have the ability to rise above it, whether that means you don't get to satisfy your sexual proclivities, or whether that means you do not get to satisfy your materialistic proclivities, or whatever proclivities that you've got that God doesn't want you to fulfill. Back to our chamber pot example. Chamber pots are useful. Some people are put on this earth to empty out outhouses. I mean that's a perfectly honorable job. Not a desirable job, but an honorable job in much part of the world. And people who go out and and empty out the night soil then take it and they sell it to farmers who spread it on the field. It is not a desirable job, but it is an honest job. So I would say in this context these are people who are made to be chamber pots as opposed to the king or Somebody high up in rank who doesn't soil his hands and doesn't have to mess with that. So two different vessels, if you will. Both of them are useful. One is honorable and the one is, "Eh, well, I would rather really not do that job. Now, what we have then in verse 22, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with patience vessels of wrath? Notice it doesn't say up above that he makes vessels of wrath. He makes vessels for honored use and others for dishonorable use. He doesn't make vessels of wrath. In order to become a vessel of wrath, the vessel has to do something to turn itself into that. And what he does is he endures that with patience in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy. Now, notice wrath and mercy are different from honorable and dishonorable. You see the change he's made here? In the one case, he has this is how you are made. Deal with it. In the other case, what he's saying is this is what you have turned yourself into, either a vessel of mercy or a vessel of wrath, but isn't what God made you to be. And it is my understanding of Christian theology that you get to choose to be a vessel of mercy or you get to choose to be a vessel of wrath. Back to Isaiah. My point in going through all of this in 8, 9, and 10 I am suggesting that what he's talking to in the case of Cyrus, if he is still talking to Cyrus, and that's ambiguous at this point, is I made you, I own you, you have an obligation to do what I want you to do. And as we just went through in Romans, it is certainly possible for Cyrus to refuse that offer, in which case Cyrus would then be a vessel of wrath. He might spend some time in the garden eating grass. That's certainly another possibility, as as was done with Nebuchadnezzar. So now we're down to 11. Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him, ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the works of my hand? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their host. I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. For he shall build my city Set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. So, what he's saying here to Cyrus is, I made you, therefore you are obligated to obey me. I have set you up, and I have given you military success. I have given you wealth. I have given you all that you have. Now, what you're going to do is you're going to send my people back, which are a valuable commodity. Remember when we were going through Exodus? The Egyptian says, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're not going to turn all these slaves loose. These are a valuable commodity. So what God is saying to Cyrus is these slaves of yours, these captives, these Israelites of yours are a valuable commodity, yet you are going to send them back without compensation. And furthermore, you are going to send back all of the captive booty that Nebuchadnezzar took from Jerusalem when he sacked the city and destroyed the temple. And in fact, Cyrus does all that. And what God is saying here in this section is, I'm the one who has set you up where you are. I am the one who's prospered you. And you need to understand that if you get greedy and you hang on to my people and you hang on to the, all the treasures that were taken out of my temple, all of that's going to turn to mud in your hand. Go all the way down to verse 14. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt... And the merchandise of Cush and the Sabians, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other, no God besides him. So what he's saying is, you're going to send my people back, but in return I am going to give you Egypt. I'm going to give you Cush, which is Ethiopia and I am going to give you the Sabians, which is the area north of Persia between the Caspian and the Black Sea, up in that area, which is now southern Russia, or the Stans, as they're called today in modern world. So what God is saying is, you're going to turn my people loose, but in return, I'm going to give you all this. 15. Truly, you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. All of them are put to shame and confounded, The makers of idols go in confusion together. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded for all eternity. So now he's switched and he's not talking to Cyrus at this point. He's talking generally. And again, we're back to the trash talk about idols. Verse 18, thus says Jehovah, who created the heavens, he is Elohim. Everybody see what's happened there? you've all been around here long enough that you understand the difference between Yehovah and Elohim. You go back to Genesis and the creation is done by Elohim. And I always have trouble talking about this because I tend to say Elohim is the God of and Yehovah is the God of, as if they are two different beings. They are not two different beings. They are one being, but there are two different aspects of that one being. And when God is dealing with the natural world, creating things, moving storms around, all that kind of stuff, he typically does it by the name of Elohim. When he is dealing with his people in mercy and grace, he typically uses the name Jehovah. So this is saying, for thus says Jehovah, the aspect of love and relationship and mercy to Israel, for thus says Jehovah, who created the heavens, he is Elohim. So not only is he the aspect who has relationship with israel he is also the aspect that created everything there are not two separate gods the same being is in loving relationship to israel is the same being who created everything and again this is contra-paganism where they look at gods as cosmic bureaucrats and this one has control of the weather And this one has control over the seas. And this one has control over that. And this one has control over that. And each one of them has his little niche. And what God, Jehovah, is saying here is it's all one. It is all me. And furthermore, down in verse 19, I do not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, Jehovah, speak the truth. I declare what is right. And again, what he is saying there is he has spoken through his prophets to his people, starting with Moses, where he gives them the Torah, and with prophets all the way up. So it is not the case that Israel is trying to figure things out on their own. Israel, in fact, has been spoken to directly by Jehovah. Verse 20. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, Jehovah? And there is no other God beside me, a righteous God and a savior. There is none beside me. So we're back to trash talking idols and notice that Cyrus is going to read all of this even though not all of it is direct face-to-face conversation where God is saying to Cyrus, I'm going to talk and you're going to listen. This is all background for Cyrus, and what he is saying is the people Israel are unique among the nations. They worship me, who is not an idol, who is not someone who is in secret, who is not powerless. All of these other nations, they worship the things that they make with their hands. Their gods cannot predict anything. Their gods have no power. So the God who is speaking to Cyrus through Isaiah is describing himself in a way that a pagan king can understand. 22. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Full stop. What you want to do is you want to read this in the context of Ephesians and Hebrews. Because Ephesians and Hebrews, between them, give the nations of the earth the understanding that Jehovah is not just some regional God who only cares about his own people. He cares about everybody. And it is, in fact, possible for anybody who comes and worships him to be saved. And this, by the way, is five or 600 years before Christ. So what he's saying here is come, turn, worship me, and you can be saved. And worshiping your idols will not result in your salvation. So verse 22 again, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. So what he's obviously saying here is that at some point, the entire creation is going to bow down before him. Might as well get started early. Get in on the ground floor of this, because it's going to happen no matter what. 24. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me are righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. Does that remind you of anything that's going on today? People are incensed with God that he has made certain people in ways that are dysfunctional. There are lots and lots of people out there in the world and lots of them today who are incensed with God. They think God is not just. If they even agree that he exists, and I, it always tickles me how an atheist can be angry with God, but they are. How can you be angry with something you don't believe exists, but to him shall come and be ashamed all who are incensed against him? In fact, there was an atheist, I don't remember who it was, some educated man of letters, uh, somebody like a William F. Buckley, was not. But you know, somebody of that intellectual stature who travels in intellectual circles and is known in that group, angry, angry atheist, and he said, "I will not worship a god who does the stuff that this god does. He allows little children to die of horrible diseases." you know lists all the problems of the world is i cannot worship a god like that and if the day comes when i stand in front of that god and he says will you come and sit down beside me i will refuse i will not sit down beside such a god just angry angry guy and i don't know that he actually believes in god but if he does he's angry so what this passage of isaiah is saying is at some point That man is going to come and kneel before God. Onward, Bel bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are borne as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Bel and Nebo are two primary gods of Babylon. So again, this is something that is aimed directly at Cyrus because those are primary gods that he would have known of in Persia and Babylon. In fact, when Daniel has his name changed from Daniel to Belteshazzar, it is a compound name of the god Bel. I don't remember exactly, but it's something like Bel reveals dreams or Bell reveals secrets or something like that. That's what his name means. But it's a compound name of the god Bell. And by the way, the same thing happens to Joseph when he gets taken out of prison and elevated to second in the land. He is given a name derivative from an Egyptian god, which essentially means the same thing in the Egyptian language as Belteshazzar means in the Babylonian language. Both of those pagan kings named their Jewish advisors essentially the same thing. So anyway, the point is, Bell bows down Nebo stoops, and they can't move by themselves. They've got to be carried around on ox carts, and they themselves will go into captivity. Verse 3, listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth carried from the womb, even to your old age. I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry and will save. What he's talking to, I would suggest, is the remnant of Israel that is in Babylon at the time when Cyrus becomes king. And what he's doing is he is reminding them that he is their God, and he's the one that sustained them. We did a time or two ago where he says, Israel is my witness, and if we didn't mention it then, we'll mention it now, and we've mentioned it a lot of times in the past, so it should be obvious to you. I think it was Mark Twain who said, the surest evidence of the existence of God is the Jews. They are the only people who has stayed a coherent people and even have regained their own language for all of these centuries. And what God is saying here is the only reason that you guys still exist, even though you are a captive in Babylon, is because I have been carrying you. And I will continue to carry you. And or Moses says for God at the end of Deuteronomy, if you follow my law and you walk in my ways, all of the nations will look upon you and say, wow. What a great and wise nation who has a God like that. And I will bless your socks off, and everybody will look at you and say, wow, look at what God does for them. However, if you don't follow my ways, I am not going to let you walk in abomination and still be called by my name, because you walking in abomination will tarnish my name. So if you choose to walk in abomination, you're still going to be my people, but you are going to be my people in poverty, exile, warfare, etc. And so what he's telling them here in Isaiah is you are my people. You have always been my people. And the fact that you were in exile is because you earned it, but I haven't forgotten you and I haven't forsaken you. And now I'm going to bring you back to your land and we're going to take another shot at this. Verse five, to whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith, and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it on their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place, and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. So we're back to trash-talking idols. And what he's saying here is, I have formed you. I have carried you, you are my people, and oh, by the way, the reason you are where you are is because you bought into this pagan idol worship stuff, and we've said before, people make idols in their own image. As I said earlier, with respect to uh, sexual deviance, everybody has things that he struggles with. And when you make an idol, what you do is you make something that gives you permission not to struggle with that thing that you've been given to struggle with. So idols give you permission to indulge in those things that God says you should overcome. So having made idols in our own image, what God is saying here is the reason that you are where you are is because you made idols in your own image and I am sending you to Idol Central to get that worked out of you. The thing that happens with idols though, is it starts off i will say with air quotes around it benign in other words it starts off a spiritual connection point like the golden calf oh well that's just a replacement for moses so we can connect to god that was the initial intent god says <laughs> sorry doesn't work that doesn't happen the problem is idol worship always descends to sexual depravity and murder because what you've got is something that allows you to indulge your deepest sins, and your sins go way deeper than you think they do. So you start off worshiping an idol like in the case of the Midianites, when the Midianite babes come in. Start off with, okay, we got these hot Midianite babes that are coming through the camp, and what we need to do is uh, cohabit with them a bit, and that sounds really fun. So it starts off, I don't want to say innocent, but it starts off small well, we're just going to do a little fooling around in sex. But the thing that happens over a period of time is the things that are inside of you that need to be suppressed go far deeper than the surface things that you initially give rain to. And as you give rain to them, what happens is you keep going deeper and deeper into the blackness of your soul. And it always ends up in oppression, murder, and death. And that's when God takes action and sends you into exile. Use as an example the abortion issue in the United States. It started off as, oh, how terrible to make a woman carry the product of someone who raped her. That's how it started. So the idea was, this is really terrible. We don't ever want to do it. But there are some really hard cases where it's necessary. So that's how it starts. And what we have now is abortion is used as a means of birth control. So it just keeps going deeper and deeper and deeper the farther you get into idol worship. Because as I say, once you start down that path, what you discover is that the depth of blackness in the human soul is just about unlimited. You know, we're seeing things now like Jeffrey Epstein and so forth that it's pervasive in our society and it all starts with something that is emotionally appealing. But once it starts, it just goes down the rabbit hole. And that's what is happening with Israel. When Israel goes into idol worship, they eventually get to the point where God can't stand it anymore and sends them off into exile. But it doesn't start there. Remember early in Isaiah, he was talking about the sins and so forth of Judah, even though Israel was the one that went into exile, it would be 120 some odd years before Judah went into exile. But it was starting... Back at the beginning of Isaiah, and by the time you get to Jeremiah, it's so stinky God can't stand it anymore. Verse 8, remember this and stand firm, recall it to mind, you transgressors, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I will bring near my righteousness, it is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put my salvation in Zion, for Israel is my glory. We have talked about the fact that Israel, when it went into exile, was scattered and essentially lost. Judah remained a coherent nation, went into Babylon, stayed there for 70 years, and then came back. And the reason it came back is because of 46.12, which is to say, listen to me, you stubborn of heart, who are far from my righteousness, I will bring near my righteousness, it is not far off, my salvation will not delay, I will put my salvation in Zion. That's talking about the Messiah. So Israel comes back out of exile the Messiah is born, has his ministry, is crucified, is raised from the dead, and then Judah turns right around and goes back into exile, which is where they are now, and they are now beginning a return again. So this is talking about the return of Judah for purposes of a messianic event.